are you looking to modernize your veterinary practice by offering virtual care to pet owners? Fortunately, there's an easy solution from the podcast sponsor, Medici. That's M-E-D-I-C-I. Medici is a telehealth solution built for veterinarians. I've made it easy to check out Medici with a link in the show notes, or you can head over to their website, medici.md, or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. Medici lets you text, call, and video chat with clients with their easy-to-use app. Send or receive images and videos of pets, stay VCPR compliant, and get paid, which is always a wonderful thing, for delivering convenient care right from your phone. Hi, this is Dr. Aaron Smiley, and I've offered telemedicine to my clients since I started. In 2017, I integrated paid telemedicine with Medici. Ready to go virtual? Visit Medici.md, that's M-E-D-I-C-I dot M-D, or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. And with that, here's the show. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, we have a very special episode where we will have two guests. The first is Dr. Phil Zeltzman, who is a traveling board certified veterinary surgeon in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And also our first returning guest, Dr. Meredith Jones, who is an emergency veterinarian in the Richmond, Virginia area. And she was on episode 20. So if you have interest and want to hear more about Meredith's background and story, I highly encourage you to go back to episode 20. Phil and Meredith, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Phil, just given the case that Meredith has been on the show and we kind of reviewed her journey into the interest in personal finance and her founding the debt-free vet Facebook group and some of those other key things, can you give a little bit of your background and kind of why you're so passionate about personal finance? Sure. So you already said that I'm a boarded surgeon. I happen to be mobile. So I go from general practice to general practice. As far as my financial journey, I was extremely lucky that right out of vet school, my dad took me to, I guess, an evening conference with a lady who manages portfolios. And I knew absolutely nothing about money or investing. And that opened my mind and led me to ask questions. So very early on, I became aware that just saving money and keeping it in a checking account is not going to take me anywhere. And I had to learn about investing. So that led me to a long journey of self-education. So I read tons of books and listened and learned from everything I could. And I became actually very interested in it. Some people find it profoundly boring. I find it extremely interesting and exciting. And one thing led to another and I eventually met Meredith. Yeah. A follow-up question real quick, Phil. Of all the different resources or books or anything that you've kind of delved into to educate yourself, anything stick out as like a favorite that you would be willing to share? I don't really remember a favorite, but since this is a private conversation, I can tell you that early on in my career, when I didn't have two pennies to rub together, I may or may not have spent a lot of time at Barnes & Noble, and I may or may not have read every single bestseller at the time. They basically all say the same thing. Chapter one is always pay yourself first. They're all the same. They all copy each other. The concepts, it's not like there's a new, brilliant revelation. The principles are simple. As long as you follow a certain number of basic rules, you will end up successful in the end. Yeah, I think there's a ton of truth to that and I appreciate the honesty there as far as spending maybe a little extra time in, in Barnes & Noble at the moment. So one of the key things and part of the reason why I wanted to get together and record this 
is you both launched Veterinary Financial Summit. And with that, personal finance is a passion for all three of us. And seeing that in the veterinary medicine space and in the community, there doesn't seem to be as much information and insight and just education for your peers. And I just wanted to ask kind of what is Veterinary Financial Summit? Why now? What's the vision? Can you share the genesis of how you both met and thought up this idea and why you think it's so important now? Sure, absolutely. So Phil and I actually met at the Uncharted Conference, which is a conference that Andy Rourke puts on each year that is a business and marketing focused conference. And so we had exchanged a couple of emails prior to going to the conference and had learned that we both have an interest in personal finance. And we started talking more at the conference about how can we help our colleagues? What can we do to support them in learning more about personal finance and also practice finance? And so we decided to launch Veterinary Financial Summit, which has two components. It has an online community And then we also have a conference, which is going to be a virtual conference this year because of what's going on with coronavirus. The plan is to have an in-person conference next year. And so we are going to have talks that focus on personal finance and practice finance. And as far as why now and what's the vision, certainly there is a lack of really good, actionable information out there for veterinarians about financial topics and also business information as well. It's something that's lacking in the vet school curriculum, or it's a very small part of the curriculum. And people are struggling out there. And some people think it's boring. We think it's really exciting. And there's a lot of pressure on vets, and it seems to have increased over the past few years with student debt becoming more of a problem. Vets are having to borrow more and more to make it through vet school. And then, of course, veterinarians have a limited income compared to other healthcare professions. And there are some changes out there with the way that some practices are running and some increased competition, that sort of thing. And the vision is really to help people retire before they're 90. Yeah, I love that. It's right on the homepage talking about, you know, if you want to retire before 90 and outlining some of those things that I think bringing some levity to a serious situation does allow that. Anything that you want to add to that, Phil? Yeah, it's interesting that you talked about vets not having a whole lot of resources and Meredith said the same. I'm very involved with different endeavors with dentists and physicians. They have a plethora of resources to educate them and help them with financial and investing things. And there's little to nothing on the vet side. And that's the void we wanted to fill because we're struggling with student debt and practice as much as they are, yet we don't have a whole lot of support. So granted, there are occasional random things that are done, but there's nothing as comprehensive as what we would like to bring to the table. And as far as the timing, now is more important than ever to help our colleagues. Practices are really hurting right now. My referring vets right now are down in revenue 30, 40, 50%. So for practices that don't make a ton of profit to begin with, they're lucky if they make 10% profit normally. 
now profits are being wiped out. So we want to help them recover from that mess. And then it's the exact same. Not everybody's a practice owner. We actually are not specifically targeting vets. We target any veterinary professional. So that include techs and managers and receptionists if they're willing and interested. So we want to help all of these people recover financially and thrive financially. Another thing I wanted to add is the online community is already open. And so our website is vetfinancialsummit.com. So that's something you can go and check out and take a look at. And then the online conference, the summit, is going to be September 25th through 27th online. And so look for registration to open up very soon. Yeah. And we will link to everything in the show notes to make it easy to find as far as the conference, the online community. And again, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the different content that you both have put up on the website, but there's a lot of great pieces being written and shared to help again with that education process, regardless of whether you want to join the online community or go to the conference. I think that there's just a lot of good being done by you both. And I certainly appreciate that. And I've seen the same things. I mean, from a financial advisor perspective, I was told early on when I wanted to focus within veterinary medicine, two things. A, I couldn't have a business that was profitable and run to work with veterinarians because they don't make enough money. And second, it was that they don't want to talk about money. They have no interest in no one will ever want to work with you. So I think that (laughs) I laugh about that, but that was some of the stuff that I was getting feedback from peers or others in the industry. Like, why in the heck would you want to do that and punish yourself? But when you think about the topic of personal finance, and I know that you're focusing both on practice finance and personal finance, what is one key thing that you would like to see your peers focus on and why, if you only had to pick one? For me, I would say emergency fund is what I want everyone to focus on. And so there are two levels of emergency fund that I like to take a look at. And so there's the starter emergency fund, and then there is a larger emergency fund. And so your starter emergency fund is, in my opinion, it should be three to $5,000. I know Dave Ramsey likes to say $1,000. He's been saying that for a lot of years. But if we look at most of us have pets, and if we look at how much pet emergencies cost. And as an ER vet, I'm very familiar with that. Certainly three to $5,000, I think is a great starting point for an emergency fund. And then when we're looking at the larger emergency fund, and so that would come at a point where if you have consumer debt, you've paid that off, for example, so like credit cards, that sort of thing. After that, you can start to save up for a larger emergency fund, which would be three to six months of expenses. Some people prefer to save more than that depending on their particular work situation, but I would say at least three to six months of expenses. And so it's something that's really important because when we think about the average American, they really aren't able to handle an emergency. And so they end up in a situation where they have to go into debt if they have an emergency situation. And certainly with some discipline, there's a way that we can prevent ourselves from getting into that situation. Yeah, I agree 100%. It's interesting to me to look at people around me. Some people who don't have an emergency fund are absolutely freaking out and they rely on forbearance for loans and it's really painful to watch. Others who do have an emergency fund have been weathering this COVID crisis very well. They don't freak out. They just survive very, very well. 
that's what it's for. It's for these unexpected things. So if I had to pick one topic, I would encourage listeners not to rely on anybody, not your employer, not your business, not the government. And this may sound strange, but I'm a huge proponent of women not relying on their spouse because I hear that all the time. Technicians and vets, when we have private conversations in the OR, I hear all the time, oh, I don't know any of that stuff. I find it boring. My husband takes care of it. Unfortunately, things happen. And when they do, you end up with zero knowledge of what's going on on the financial side of things. So I don't think anybody should rely on some magic fairy or knight saving you. Everybody should educate themselves. Again, it's not rocket science. If anybody can go through vet school, anybody can understand personal finance and practice finance. It's not rocket science. And with very simple principles and certainly a lot of discipline, people can absolutely be financially successful. I think that's great advice to not just rely on someone else. And I see that a lot as well, where working with couples or working with spouses, one will typically say, you know what, this is my thing where for me, I always require both of them to come to meetings and learn and educate, even if one maybe is less interested, but you're exactly right. You need to each have a baseline of knowledge and not rely on someone else. I think that's great advice. And on the emergency fund, it's a topic that a lot of people didn't want to necessarily have when everything was going well. And I think just because of the COVID crisis and some of the things coming up, it will be a topic that will not be hopefully forgotten for a number of years or if ever, just because of the pain that it has caused a number of people. So I think those are great areas to think about and focus on. One thing that we touched on a little bit was the practice finance piece. And if you've listened to any episode that I've talked about and I certainly am biased because I do believe in ownership myself because I did start my own business. But what do you think about ownership for a veterinarian as a wealth building tool, but also just in the day and age that we are in? What does ownership look like? Any thoughts? Yeah, I'm also a huge proponent of ownership, even though I don't think ownership is for everybody. I still think you can be successful as an employee, but I've owned and sold and managed multiple practices. I only have two right now. Certainly, There's a lot of headaches, especially right now. Practice owners are certainly struggling right now to survive. But again, it's just like on the personal finance side, if people are willing to learn about practice management and practice finance, then yes, I think it's a great wealth building tool. And incidentally, that's what we're going to talk about at the conference. Yeah, I agree. It's certainly a great wealth building tool, but I do also believe that wealth can be built outside of practice ownership. And so for me, I'm not a practice owner at this time. It's something that I would be open to if the right opportunity came up. It's not something that I'm currently chasing. And certainly I have always, since I graduated, have always worked at 24-hour hospitals. And so we have a different set of problems with keeping it staffed for 24 hours a day and especially with the current situation as well. And so something that I would personally be open to, but would need to have the right partners. And so I think it's something that is an individual decision. Like Phil said, it's not for everyone. It depends on what your overall career goals are. And it also depends on family situations There are a lot of factors to consider, and there are certainly other ways of building wealth besides practice ownership, but definitely practice ownership is one of the best ones for veterinarians in general. I think Meredith used the key word. 
she said, with the right partners. And having been there, I can tell you that having the right partners is absolutely critical. So I would rather have somebody never become an owner rather than having somebody become an owner with the right partner or partners, because that can be an absolute nightmare. Please don't ask me how I know. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say, like, I completely agree. There's a lot more nuance around ownership or not ownership. And you don't have to do it yourself because you can't have partners. But just like you alluded to there, Phil, partnerships are like marriage. And when you go through a marriage and then it goes through a divorce, it's messy and it can get complicated. And so you don't want to rush into something. You want to make sure you take your time, do your due diligence, make sure it's the right opportunity versus say, hey, I heard ownership's great. I'm just going to go do this and I'm going to trust without verifying and getting into a sticky situation where it's going to be more painful and a worse hardship, even financially, but also emotionally to get out of versus the benefits that could come along with ownership from that standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. I think the answer is all of the above. It's like building a portfolio, owning a practice could be part of that. It's always risky, you know, the famous expression, it's always risky to put all your eggs in the same basket is if people have a practice and zero personal savings, it could be risky, especially look at what's happening now. If people only have one type of investment in gold coins only, or in timber only, or in cows only, it can be risky. So being diversified may or may not include owning a practice. Yeah, I agree with that as well. And the other thing for associates to keep in mind is that practice ownership isn't really the only way that vets can own businesses. Certainly there are vets out there who have side businesses, whether it's veterinary related or not, whether they're doing a relief work on the side or whether they have an interest that they're pursuing or do speaking or writing. Veterinary Financial Summit is an example of a business that's not a practice that we run. And so there are definitely opportunities for business ownership outside of practice ownership. That's a great point. And I had Dr. Lauren Smith, aka The Vetitude on. And again, she's an associate. She has her own other separate business doing speaking and writing. And there are plenty of other ways to be a vetrepreneur, as I think a lot of people have been coined to do a lot of creative things. Because as was mentioned earlier, if you can get through vet school, you're obviously very intelligent and you can do a lot of different things. And so putting that knowledge and skill set to work doing things related to veterinary medicine or outside of the industry can certainly lead to other businesses. And yeah, just look at what your strengths are and try to leverage those as much as you can. Yeah, we actually both know Lauren. She's fantastic. She's a perfect example of a business owner who's not a brick and mortar practice owner. So moving forward with just another question. And again, Meredith, with you having the Facebook group of debt-free, that's very, very popular. What are your thoughts on good debt, bad debt, debt in general? Well, certainly one thing to say right out of the gate is that for most vets in the U.S., going to vet school is not something that you're going to be able to fund out of pocket. And so for most of us, unless we have had some outside help with parents saving up, that sort of thing, most of us are going to need to take out student loans in order to get through vet school. And so student debt is an example of good debt. It's painful, but it's still good debt because you're making an investment in yourself. 
So it's something that while it's going to take some time to either pay that off or if you're in one of the income-driven repayment plans to end up fulfilling your requirements for, even though it's something that you have to go through that process with, certainly this profession is, as we've said, whether it's through practice ownership or some other avenues or being an associate, certainly it's a way that we can make a living doing what we love. And that's incredibly important. Yeah, I agree. As far as bad debt, and this is tricky because there's a lot of psychology going into it, but I think everybody can agree that credit card debt is bad. Not everybody will agree that car debt is bad, but if you look objectively at numbers, it's one of the worst possible loans out there. And then I'm not even going to go into the controversy of buying versus leasing a car. Home mortgages, that's usually considered good debt, as long as you don't buy more than you can afford. And I have a special interest. I'm very involved in what's called alternative investing. So to me, any type of mortgage, including to invest in real estate, which is a lot of what I do, is considered good debt. So it all depends on how you look at things and if you look at what the specific purchase brings you. So buying fancy shoes and purses and collectible items, that may bring joy, but also may bring a lot of pain if it's bought with plastic. Whereas we all need a roof over our heads. We do all need a car to go to work, at least most of us. But again, like anything, there's smart ways and bad ways to buy a car. Phil, you talked about alternatives. Can you share a little bit of like why you had that interest in real estate and what kind of led that? Not that I want to completely take the conversation that way, but just out of curiosity, I think that would be interesting to explore a little bit more too. Yeah. So basically, typical or traditional investing is investing in the stock market. What's called alternatives is anything that's outside the stock market. So to oversimplify, it's real estate, but it's really any investment that provides reliable, consistent, predictable income. And it's uncorrelated to the stock market. So anybody who was in the stock market probably took a 20, 30, 40% haircut. People in real estate, um, it's sort of a misnomer. I'd rather say cash flow investing, the crisis doesn't really affect them at all. So that's what I mean by reliable and predictable income. If you think about real estate very specifically, if you think of it as a rental property, if people don't pay their rent, which is happening a lot right now, especially while you have a mortgage, well, that can become tricky. So again, I don't want people to think that cash flow investing is only real estate. It's much more complicated than that. No, I shouldn't say complicated. It's much more diversified and varied than that. But that's what I do almost exclusively, and that's totally changed my life. So I'm a huge proponent of it. Yeah, and I'm definitely a fan of using real estate as an alternative, as you talked about. And I think there's a lot of advantages to it. And you kind of alluded to it, like it's not a panacea. It's not perfect because there can still be challenges that are unique to it. But yeah, it's not something that is completely outside the realm of what someone could have access to and do. And there certainly are different styles of it. That could be a whole podcast in itself. And maybe that is something that we decide to record something together and you kind of walk through that and share it. That might be something that's of a lot of interest. And so I know that you've had a lot of great experiences in that realm. So thank you for sharing that. Sure. So we talked about at the top on the website, you've both written and jointly written. I don't know how much of it's always joint or if one person leads the other, but anyways, there's a lot of great content on different posts on the website. 
Can each of you share maybe what's been a personal favorite of yours and why? Sure. So one of my favorites is called What Do You Love Spending Money On? And so what we do in that blog is we go through a concept that Ramit Saiti, who's the author of I Will Teach You to Be Rich, we talk about his concept of money dials. And so what that means is you ask yourself, what do you love spending money on? And you prioritize that. So you spend on the things that truly matter to you. And then you create a system, whether that's with your budget or otherwise, where you're cutting costs on the things that don't really matter so much to you. And I just love that because it's a way of thinking about money in as not just something where we're making sacrifices, but where we're saying, okay, well, we work really hard. Why are we working so hard? And then what are we working for as we're working as hard as we do? And so taking that and using that in your life so that you're spending some money on things that are fun rather than looking at money as something where you're always making sacrifices and just penny pinching. Yeah, I love that, Meredith. I was saying earlier that every financial book turns out to be similar to the next. Virtually every single financial book out there vilifies lattes. They say, if you drink a latte every day, are we allowed to say idiot on your podcast, Isaiah? You can say whatever you want to say. Well, they basically say, if you buy a latte every day, you're an idiot. You're wasting your money. If you invested that money in the stock market, in 75 years, you would be a millionaire. Well, Ramit and Meredith and I don't like that philosophy. That's a scarcity mentality. It's perfectly fine to splurge on things you love. You know, if you love interior design, or if you love living on the beach, or if you love fancy coffee, that's perfectly fine. But then you got to be reasonable and be conservative in other things in your life. So I agree with that. One of my favorite, I would say, couple blogs we've written were early on about millionaires. And it doesn't mean that anybody can or should be or wants to be a multimillionaire. What I was more interesting in is their behavior and what they do in their everyday lives. And again, it's not rocket science. You know, it's the concept of traditional income versus residual income. They put a strong emphasis on self-improvement and self-education. They watch who they hang out with very carefully. The reason we wanted the conference to go beyond the conference and build a community around it is because we know firsthand how powerful it is. Being in a strong community right now, I'm in multiple communities. I'm in an investment community. I'm in a surgeon community. I'm in several veterinary communities. Being surrounded by like-minded individuals is what's helped me survive the COVID crisis. It's helped me get to where I am financially. So that's what we want to recreate with our online community and the conference is to hang out with people who think the same way or help them think the same way so that they can thrive in the future. So back to the success habits or the behavioral habits of millionaires, you know, it's things like were described in the Millionaire Next Door book or books. There's a couple out now the way people invest, the way people spend, the way they raise their kids, the jobs they choose, all of these simple things play a huge role in how they end up by the time they retire. Again, this is not rocket science. These are very, very simple 
concepts. I agree on the latte thing. I think it's really funny when I know Ramit talks about like there's $3 decisions or there's $30,000 decisions. And it's like, you want to focus on the things that truly move the needle and not these small things of thinking about things from a scarce perspective. And obviously, Phil, you touched on one of my favorite books that I've encouraged so many different people to read is The Millionaire Next Door, The Next Millionaire Next Door, which came out in I actually talked with one of the co-authors, so Dr. Sarah Fala. She was on, I think, episode seven. I don't have it for sure, but that's one episode that you know I always track how many listens and different things. And I was so excited to talk to her. She's super giving of her time, and I would highly encourage anyone to go back to that because it talks about those mindsets. And it's a really excellent episode. She does a great job at outlining those things and has done a ton of research. And I think that's one of those things that I would say your peers, Phil and Meredith, from a veterinary perspective so much of the knowledge and insights that you learn is it's academically proven and there's studies and this is what it is. Like you diagnose, this is the treatment, this is how you go about things. And I love the work that was done in those books from the standpoint of trying to take that same academic or medical mindset of it's not, I think, and I feel it's like, this is really what it leads to. This is how you can think about things to get you to where you want to go. And then make the custom tweaks or the things like you talked about that are important to you, whether it's a lifestyle choice to have a fancier house, or maybe it is a vehicle. And I would agree with you that auto debt is one of those that is, you know, poor decision. But if that's really where joy comes from, then maybe that is the thing that someone wants. But yeah, I think that's great advice from both. And one thing that I'd like to ask both of you is, is there a soapbox topic in either practice or personal finance that you want to share that you just say, you know what, this is something that either bothers me or I'm really passionate about that people need to know. Like you can take that any direction you want to go. I'll let you kind of answer that. All right. So I'll go first. So one topic that comes up a lot with student debt is the tax bomb. And so those vets who are taking advantage of the income-driven repayment plans, which have become very popular over the past few years. When I graduated, it was something that wasn't really a thing, but now it's something that many, many vets are taking advantage of. And we talked early on about emergency funds. And when you use an income-driven repayment plan, you have to, and it's very important, it's crucial to save for the tax bomb. And so this is something that's a long-term savings over 20 to 25 years. Well, that's something that's completely separate from your emergency funds. So that tax bond money as you're saving it up, that is not something that you can use as an emergency fund because you have to have that money in 20 to 25 years. And that's no matter what the economy looks like at that point. So that's something else to bring up as we're in a down economy. And so it's something that's, uh, and Isaiah, maybe you can chime in on just broadly ways that people are actually saving for the tax bomb. But I know lots of vets in my group who are using income-driven repayment to make their student loan payments as low as possible right now. And certainly that works for them and it can be a financial planning tool to some extent. But at the same time, if they're not saving for that tax bomb, they could really be in trouble with the IRS in 20 to 25 years. Absolutely. And I think about one of the first clients that I had that was on a income driven repayment plan. She didn't know that she was going to owe likely probably fifty dollars to $60,000 down the road. And she was like, oh, this was never explained when I chose this option. And I do think that's a tremendously important topic to 
think about. And as far as the way that people put money aside, I would always encourage if you're going to just stick it in your savings account and hope that over 20 some years that you're going to have enough there, you're going to have to be saving a lot. And so I always say, try to have something that's A, tax efficient, but B is going to give you some growth to really accomplish what you need it to be. And then as you get closer to that end date, because like you alluded to, Meredith, you can't extend that. It's not like, oh, I'll just work another year. Like maybe if you got to retirement and you didn't have enough money saved, you can't ask to say, hey, can I have another year to save? Like I really need to make a little bit more money. So you need to be cognizant of making sure there's enough growth there, but also at the tail end of getting closer to that, you don't want to go through an experiment of seeing a down market where you were maybe really aggressive and then you see some of that money go away. So I think you just really need to be careful with that and think through it. And that would actually be a great topic that I'm sure you've talked about on Summit or Will at some point, but I think that is a good idea to, to chat through. Phil, what's your thoughts on kind of this soapbox topic and anything that comes up personal or practice finance? Yeah, I remember a blog post we had early on about one of these ultra classic books by Robert Kiyosaki, who's the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And one of his books is The Cashflow Quadrant. And I think it's really important to understand that very simple concept. He basically explains that there's four quadrants. In one, you're an employee. Another one, you're self-employed. A third one, you're a business owner. And the fourth one, you're an investor. And I think it's really important to understand these, again, very simple concepts to understand where you stand. Certainly, there is ways to become financially successful or financially independent in all four quadrants. But he shows pretty clearly in his book that if you're on the business owner side or the investor side, you have a much higher chance of being financially successful than if you're an employee or even a self-employed person, which leads me to another classic book, which escapes me. I apologize. You both know about the book. It's the guy who talks about the entrepreneurial seizure and people who say, well, specifically associates who say, I'm working hard for my boss. I'm just going to take my knowledge and open my own practice and I'll make all the money myself. So that's what is called somebody who's self-employed. E-myth. The e-myth. Thank you. Michael Gerber. Oh my God. The seizure part is like, that's Gerber. Okay. Yep. So... What he describes is something I've noticed many, many times is that some of our colleagues do open up shop and they think that this is the solution to their unhappiness. And unfortunately, they discover that it's actually hard to be the boss and be the clinician and be the coach and be the HR person and do the ordering and sometimes clean up rooms and so on and so forth. So again, going back to what Meredith was saying earlier, having partners or having managers who you can delegate to is critically important. So many people who think that owning a practice is the solution to all of their problems end up being in the self-employed category as opposed to truly a business owner. And that can lead to a whole lot of unhappiness. So again, there are ways to do all of these things very successful. You just need the right knowledge and surround yourself with the right people. I think that's just a great thing to talk about from the standpoint of I can feel some of those things as well from a you know business owner or self-employed and invest. Like I think anyone that has that entrepreneurial itch will feel that way of, hey, I'm going to go do my own thing and I have it figured out. And it's like, there's a lot of challenges that are associated with that. And you'll learn that over time and you'll certainly feel the pressure of that. And 
the idea of a community and then the idea of other people that can help support you when you know things are tough that also can challenge you and encourage you are super, super important. And that's why I'm a huge fan of what you're both doing. And certainly the veterinary community needs this kind of push and information. And I'm very appreciative of what you're doing and with the podcast. So kind of wrapping up, I always ask the question around success. And obviously, Meredith, you've answered that personally. And since this is a joint episode around Veterinary Financial Summit, what would make the Veterinary Financial Summit successful? Like, how would you define that? Well, you know, Isaiah, we have very humble goals and we're simply interested in changing lives. So if we can help someone out there fix their personal finance or help them on the path to success with practice finance, that'll be a success. So in other words, if we can take somebody who knows nothing about investing or saving and we can help them get an emergency fund and get a well-balanced portfolio, not that we're going to give stock advice. That's not what we're about. Plus, it's illegal. We just want to help people get the proper education. And if we can help practice owners, younger or not so young, new or not so new, understand what KPIs are and how to run a successful practice, that'll be a huge success. And that's exactly what we're planning on doing. So just like you need to surround yourself with the right people in practice, personal life, it's exactly the same. We are joining forces with people who are extremely knowledgeable on the personal and practice finance side. So we're going to have fantastic speakers. As we've said before, we don't believe that financial stuff has to be boring. We think it can be very engaging and entertaining. And the people we'll have as speakers will prove that. And it's people from all walks of life. Some people are entrepreneurs, some are CPAs, some are financial advisors, some are GPs in the trenches who do something amazing at their practice. And we'd like them to share with our community what they do. So it's going to be a multifaceted conference so that virtually anybody in the veterinary field can learn from and can be successful with. Yeah, to add to what Phil was saying with the conference, and like I said, it's going to be a virtual conference. It's going to be this year in September. We're going to have outstanding speakers who are engaging and present really practical information that you can immediately take and use in your life and in your practice. And we're going to have topics that are really relevant and tailored to the world that we live in right now with everything that is changing. And with the online community, as far as success goes, I believe that if we can continue to foster a growing community of veterinary professionals who are engaged and helping to support each other year round and have accountability buddies. And as Phil was saying earlier, have people who really are holding each other accountable to achieving their financial goals, then will be a success. Yeah. Again, I'll just reiterate. I love what you both are doing. I think it's fantastic. It's definitely needed. And I'm looking forward to seeing how everything progresses and see how the community is able to flourish and grow. It's certainly a big undertaking and you both are doing this on top of everything else you're doing that we talked about earlier. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for spending some time and joining me today on the podcast and sharing that. And we will absolutely make sure that all the links, the ability to sign up for the summit, everything is out there to make it easy to find. But Phil, Meredith, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks, Isaiah. 
Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should talk to your professional team before implementing anything. Isaiah is the founder of ID Financial Planning and Wealth Management. Isaiah is a registered investment advisor in the state of Indiana. The biggest compliment you can give is to share this podcast with a friend. Reviews help the show get found. And Apple Podcasts is a platform that is predominantly how people listen to the show. If you have three minutes, love the show, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us an honest review and rating. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links, and information, head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can also subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information and insights and the ability to have your voice heard, please consider joining the private podcast Facebook group. You can search for the Veterinarian Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com, scroll down to the about your host and click on the Facebook icon. Then I can approve you, let you into the group and would love to hear from you there. Thanks for listening and I'll be talking again to you soon.